Rusty Quill presents. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey guys, hope you all had a really good holiday season. If you like this podcast, you can now support it on Patreon at patreon.com slash woe underscore begone or just search for Woebegone like it's normally spelled. I'm planning lots of bonus material, art, music, early episodes, episode instrumentals, and even a dramatic reading of the Pacific Northwest Stories parody Dogcatcher. Thanks to Risky Coffee, Plum Mule, and Your Name for being my first patrons. Without further ado, enjoy the show. There is a flowering plant in a folding chair sitting in front of the door. You know that the flower is poisonous, but you think that it is beautiful. Your cat died from eating the leaves of this plant, but you can't manage to resent the plant. It was only protecting itself. Throwing it out doesn't bring her back to life. Big pink and white flowers. It deserves better than to be plopped down on top of a folding chair. You think that it is beautiful. Sitting it on a chair makes it less beautiful. It makes the chair less functional. Big pink and white flowers. Poisonous. I am on Proxima B, 4.2 light years from Earth. That's 2.5 times 10 to the 13th miles from your house. I have extended a pole from my house to yours, 4.2 light years long. I push on my end of the pole, and it moves the pole. It moves it closer to your house. My movement results in the pole moving in your house instantly because the pole is rigid. I am communicating to you faster than the speed of light. 
We've solved faster than light travel, you and I. Pop by Proxima B sometime. It's just like home. But nothing is perfectly rigid, outside of a thought experiment. 4.2 light years of atoms stacked on top of each other, some of them are bound to betray you. The pole wavers and falters. It takes 4.2 years for the movement to reach you. The pole snaps in two in the middle. It drifts away from your house into space. I'm sorry. Nothing is perfectly rigid. I miss you. There is a flowering plant in a folding chair sitting in front of the door. You know that the flower is poisonous, but you think that it is beautiful. You see the cat's face in the pink and white patterns on the beautiful flower. You call your boyfriend at work and tell him that you're buying an end table for the plant. He says he wishes that you would throw that thing out. You tell him that I am on Proxima B, 4.2 light years from Earth, and my communication pole broke. Big pink and white flowers. The table does its job. It stands rigid and stark white in your doorway, and keeps the potted plant on top of it. The flowers can be beautiful now, without distraction. You cannot find where you've placed your resentment. I push on my end of the pole, thoughtlessly, knowing that if I am communicating with someone, it can't be with you. The pole pushes back at me, faster than light communication. May I ask who is speaking, please? That's what theoretical physicist Eliza Schultz wrote back to me when I emailed her asking about her involvement with a mysterious and bloody game. This is Woebegone. Wobegon is told in order, with an occasional musical interlude. If you're new here, start back at episode one. When you get back, you'll know who Eliza Schultz is, but you won't know what that email means, because I mean, I sure as hell don't. So, you guys are pretty caught up to where I am now. That means that each week, I'll be pretty much just telling you what happened to me that week. And I'm going to have to be a little careful about it because things are happening. This place has been a dumping ground for my speculation, but if I speculate too long about what's going on out here in public, I'm basically asking the people that I'm speculating about to please not be duplicitous and use what I know against me. Don't worry, this all still won't make sense after I've confirmed my suspicions, but I will say it with an air of confidence so that you think that something very clever just happened. Email correspondence with Eliza was going interestingly, but not exactly productively. The email that I read at the top of the show was a response to one that I had written, asking about her academic work and if she knew anything about the potential of changing the past using current technologies. As you can see, she addressed exactly zero of my questions. So I wrote her back and I was a little more blunt this time. Miss Schultz, I have reason to believe that you played a game called Wobegon, 
and that you may have been manipulated into forgetting that you played it. Does this ring any bells? She replied, and I quote, There is a ghost who sits on my chest at night. It doesn't hurt. He is not hurting me. He doesn't weigh anything. I think he's lost. He's lost or he doesn't know why he's here. He speaks to me, but he doesn't make any sense. He says things like, Sometimes she has good days, but it's mostly bad recently. And, It's hard to tell if she even knows that we are here. I tell him that I wish I knew who he was talking about. He is lost, and she is lost too. They are not lost together. I wish he wouldn't sit on my chest anymore. Not because it hurts me, but because he is the one who is hurting. Which, fine. Those are definitely pretty words arranged in an order to communicate a thought. But if that thought is supposed to be a response to my questions, I don't get it. I decided to dig through her old blog post to see if I could find anything that was more coherent and less poetic. The older the post, the more lucid she seemed to be, but ironically the more difficult to understand she became because her work is so far beyond my comprehension. I eventually stumbled onto a post that seemed to point me in the right direction. The Mechanification of Theory, a plausible methodology for retrocausal informatics. In The Mechanification of Theory, Eliza Schultz lays out what she considers a plausible methodology to achieve retroactive informatics, obviously. And by that, I think she means turning theoretical physics into a practical tool that can then be used to communicate across space and time. You're probably wondering, isn't this just some quantum entanglement junk science bullshit? I say that you're probably asking that because she spends three whole paragraphs assuring us that this isn't quantum entanglement junk science. I think, I think the idea is that quantum particles can be sent back in time, hence retro-causal, and it's possible to determine a set of probabilities of how that particle will react. So improving our models of the probabilistic behavior of these particles and learning to narrow down those probabilities, we can affect the past by sending these particles back into it. That is to say, we can affect the past such that in the past that particle existed. That's about as interesting as, say for instance, creating a different universe where you didn't lose that band t-shirt that you liked so much in high school. A uh, curiosity, but not something that can be used to do very much. Most things are tremendously larger than quantum particles, pretty much by definition. If you want to, for instance, and I'm just spitballing here, prevent a handsome podcaster from dying in a home renovation accident, you're going to have to move something macroscopic around back in time. And even if you could do that, there's still the probabilistic range of effects. What if whatever you sent back in time to save the handsome podcaster with the luscious hair and the deep hazel eyes and a comforting, sometimes sultry voice... What if you sent something back and you accidentally slammed his head into the saw blade instead? Now he's extra dead and not nearly as handsome. Eliza says that's not really a problem. In fact, she says that you are going to do that. Whatever can happen under the laws of the universe, universes, will happen as an effect of you sending something back in time. You merely just have to hop over to the universe where that thing already happened. You know, just pop on over to the dimension where you didn't lose that band t-shirt you liked so much in high school. How hard could that be? So, I know what you're thinking, again, if you have to hop dimensions in order to get the effects of this retrocausality, why don't you just find a dimension where the beefcake podcaster didn't die and just hop over there? Well, there's two answers. 
One is that if you don't change things backwards in time, you aren't saving any extra Mike Walters's. Another is that we don't really have any way to narrow down our search results in finding those dimensions in which I didn't die. It would be infinitely harder than finding a song based on the first lyric of the first verse, for instance. So, how do we view our multidimensional effects across dimensions? With phantom chords. I don't really understand the how of this, but Schultz proposes a way to attach a metaphorical cord to the particle or object we're sending back so that we can hold on to one end while the other end splinters off into all of our relevant dimensions. There's a lot of math at this point in the document, but mostly she wants you to know again that this is not quantum entanglement, which cannot create information, and instead it is her own thing. The methodology for creating a machine that could do this is outlined with a lot more computer engineering than I know anything about, and she says that a current supercomputer could crunch a sufficient amount of numbers to get this going, and she said that in 2005. My understanding is that the PS5 has about 10 times as much computing power as a supercomputer from 2005. She even has a section devoted to retrocausal travel of biology, noting the teleporter problem, in which the type of teleporter commonly described in sci-fi would kill anything put through it by ripping apart its molecules and reconstituting it on the other side. She describes a teleportation in a, quote, retrocausal pocket, exactly the size of the object in question, moving through space-time to its desired location. It sort of reminds me of the infinite improbability drive from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This is important if you want to actually be in the dimension where the thing happened that you wanted to happen. So that's promising, right? It seems like it lays out all of the tools that would be necessary in order to make a game like Wobegon happen. It takes the Charles Thibodeau hypothesizing and turns it into a way to actually do it. The Wobegon game runners wouldn't even need to go into the dimensions that they were changing unless they really wanted to. They could be sitting on a throne of dead Mike Walters corpses running things remotely. Or they could pop into a dimension, do whatever they want, and find their way home with the Phantom Cord. They have complete control over the destiny of the universe, with only their imaginations holding them back. And also holding them back is that there's a set of Wobegon game runners in every universe that have their own plans, and those plans might be different from the ones who are doing this. Some people might even possess the technology and not use it to play a game at all. But isn't this all a little too... easy? Cannonball's been sitting on this for years, and just casually dropped it into a conversation we were having about something else. Well, maybe casually is the wrong word. He might as well have just blurted out, Look up Eliza Schultz! She's a Wobegon adjacent person! Looking back, it wasn't subtle. He wanted me to discover the mechanification of theory. It definitely lends credence to his idea that it's possible to harness the technology at the core of Wobegon. It also explains why he cares more about the technology than the prize. The prize is worthless compared to the now very real possibility of making this machine. There's even a publicly available document laying out what you would need in order to do so. Sorry, Matt, but it's true. There's a cosmically large reward. My human brain isn't even sufficient to understand the possibilities. I certainly wouldn't use it to run a stupid little game. My mental limitations are a real problem here. What if this is all just a red herring? I can read over the mechanification of theory and smile and nod and get a hypothetical idea of what she's saying, but someone with a physics background could BS me and I'd never even know. And that's if she's trying to BS me and not just a delusional old woman whose mind left her a long time ago. Her current writing suggests that she's been declining for a long time now, so why not back in 2005? It looks real to me, and something is definitely actually happening in my actual life that is described in this document. 
it's not like I'm being microdosed with LSD by someone who's manipulating me or something stupid like that. The laws of causal relationships are being warped around me based on a set of tasks that I am being given by a mysterious group. I would have to deny a lot of my experiences to come to any other conclusion. So, if a group of people is running this game, they have a technology that is either the same as or similar to this technology laid out in the document. This technology must be born from a methodology, and this one seems as sound as any, certainly more realized than Thibodeau. So why didn't Cannonball lead with this? He's known about this for years, purportedly, and yet he hasn't built a machine, and he didn't mention it to me until I was already through with the third challenge. He could have easily linked me to this public website the first time that he made contact with me. It could have been the only thing that we talked about, instead of laying out our ideas about how the game works and the stupid point system. The point system doesn't matter by comparison. Well, I say that as someone who's comfortably in the lead. It may just be that he wanted it as an upper hand in the game, but then he never should have offered me the breadcrumbs. If Schultz is right, then Cannonball has basically given me a roadmap to victory. There's got to be an angle that he's coming from that I can't understand yet. It's suspicious, I tell you. After reading the document, I sent Cannonball an email from my new burner email. I titled it Eliza Schultz, in all lowercase since his thing seems to be all uppercase everything, and I didn't want to step on it. I told him that I wanted to meet with him ASAP, today if possible. He emailed me back a reasonable amount of time later, and told me to meet him at the coffee shop in an hour. Date number three. After the break, I'll tell you what happened between me and Cannonball on our little date. I must be a loser in an Asian war. Every newest struggle I have never seen before. There must be someone pulling strings that wants to settle scores. I must be a loser in an ancient war. I must be a loser in some ancient war. I apologize for wearing whatever uniform I wore. I'm sure that someone told me what I was fighting for. I must be a loser in some ancient war. Before history hit record 
The guilt I've carried with me Always too much to ignore I must be a loser in some ancient war Yeah, I must be a loser in some ancient war I've got white flags and flashbacks And tracks on foreign shores Yeah, I must be a loser in some ancient war Cannonball and I both showed up right on time for our meeting. His disposition felt a little bit different, but it was hard to tell how. His expression seemed happier and more confident, something like that. <gasps> Shit-eating! Like he was happy that I called this meeting because I had followed his breadcrumb trail. It was difficult to detect, but I swear he had a shit-eating smirk that snuck out from time to time. So you found some interesting stuff on Eliza's blog, huh? Cannonball asked. The mechanification of theory, I responded. Oh, that's a good one. It almost tells you all that you need to know, he said. Can you tell me about what Eliza was like when she was playing Wobegon, I asked. Sure. Bobcat was her call sign. I noticed you still don't have one. Well, I called myself Mike Walters in a podcast. There's not much I can do about it now, I replied. Oh, well. Anyway, Bobcat found the game a long time before I did. She never told me, but I think that the game runners reached out to her directly and asked for her participation because they were familiar with her work. She was interested in the technology, of course. When she saw what it was capable of, she knew that they were basing it off her work and she wanted to know everything. Unfortunately, the game runners aren't exactly forthcoming with how to put together whatever device they're using, so she frequently grew impatient with them. She didn't have the heart or the stomach to pull off any of the challenges after the first one. That was a major problem for her. How did you meet her? I asked. Back then, her blog had a bunch of references to Wobegon in it, so I actually found her via a Google search. There aren't that many intersections of real-time travel and a challenge where you cut your own arm off, so it showed up at the top of the results page if you googled what happened in the challenges. She avoided the name for the most part, so as not to draw in the kind of attention that gets you punished. So you talked about the tech together? I asked. At length. At length to the length that my high school education could teach me, Cannonball said. Bobcat was way smarter than me, and way more resourceful. We discussed building a machine together, but I don't have any coding knowledge or anything, so it's more like I talked with her about her building the machine. We were still pre-planning when I was doing the third challenge, and that's the last time I ever saw her. She lost while I was in prison. How did she lose? I asked. She couldn't kill someone, he said. I knew there was no way that she could kill anybody, which means it was only a matter of time before someone else started taking the game seriously and passed her. I figure there's probably dozens of people that we don't know about that play the game up until the second or third challenge, and then just drop out because they can't handle the game for what it really is. The game runners have only ever told me when my place changed, and only told me your name because you passed me up for first. It's impossible to tell who else is playing, and how well they're doing. So what did they do to her when she lost? I asked. I don't really know. I can still remember her. I'm sure that's on purpose. They want you to know what happens when you play the game and lose. By the time I got out of prison, she wasn't nearly as sharp as she used to be. I don't think that's a coincidence either. I sent her an email to test whether or not she remembered me, and she clearly didn't. I could tell from her blog that she lost, because all the posts about Wobegon were gone, and she was posting stuff that was markedly... let's call it different. Oh, do you mean that she was posting incoherent poems? I asked. Yep, that's what I got back when I emailed her too, he said. It's like they gave her a frontal lobotomy. 
the university she worked at played it off like she was just an older professor whose mind was drifting away, but I don't think that she regressed in any natural way. Her family keeps her at home mostly now, because when they let her go out, she usually wanders into traffic. So you don't think that she was maybe beginning to get senile when she wrote the mechanification of theory, I asked? Definitely not. There was so much light behind her eyes back then. I went to her house and pretended to be her plumber in order to get a better look at her, and she just looks... gone. It's incredibly sad. I think they mutilated her brain. So if we lose, do you think they'll do that to us? I asked. No question, Cannonball said. The first prize couldn't matter any less at this point. That would happen to Anne, too, if she dropped out of the game. Fuck. I hate playing two games of Wobegon at once. I made a mental reminder to tell her about this as soon as the conversation was over. So have you tried to build a Wobegon machine? I asked. Have you tried to build a car? I mean, I don't know you that well, but just looking at you. He trailed off. What he meant to say is that I'm too handsome to possibly stoop to the lowly, dirty world of automotive mechanics. Is it not possible? I asked. Not without Bobcat. At least it feels that way, he said. His expression changed briefly when he said this. Clearly someone else did it, but I haven't found anyone since that that had what she had. But that's still your plan, I said. That's the only way I can see myself winning Wobegon, he said. So I either make the machine or I lose. But how are you going to make it? I asked. We're going to find someone else that's really into retrocausal informatics, he said. And who is also capable of building a real machine that can do this and is willing to work with people who are playing a bloody time travel game, I added. That's the reason I haven't got it done yet, he said. Information isn't enough to solve this puzzle. Charles Thibodeau had access to the information, but he didn't have the technology to realize that information. It didn't even exist yet. Now it clearly does. And if it does exist, then there's a way to get access to it. The fact that we're even trying to have this discussion is proof of that. I don't think it's magic, and I don't think that the Wobegon game runners are a caliber of genius that's completely outside our reckoning. I think that we can actually get our minds around this and get our hands on it. He leaned back in his chair and took a sip of his coffee, as if he were quite pleased with himself. Well, that's that then, I guess. We'll just have to keep digging. There's one more thing that I want to talk about, Cannonball said. I've narrowed down our second place challenger to one city. How did you do that? I asked. I tried to look calm, but I'm really bad at acting like I'm not nervous, so I probably didn't succeed. There was a cop that was reported missing only a couple days before the scoreboard updated. Nowhere else in the United States has a similar case. It almost immediately went cold and closed, too. Smells like a completed challenge number three to me. How are you going to narrow it down from a whole city full of people? I asked. I have ways, he said, his eyes narrowed. What is that supposed to mean? I asked. Didn't you go to the university? Cannonball asked. So? I've lived here for ten years, I said. Shit, why do I still have a Facebook page? I'm not saying you know something that you don't, but I can imagine a possibility where you're involved with the second person in some way. Why would I get someone else that I know to play the game? I asked. That would reduce my chances of winning. I'm not saying that I suspect you of anything. I'm just careful by nature. If I suspected you of something, I keep it close to the chest instead of just telling you. So, I'll wait and confirm some of my suspicions before I jump to anything crazy. That's almost exactly what I said about him earlier, and I do think that he's suspicious. My bluff had been thoroughly called. I thought about just telling him then and there, but I held my tongue. 
It was important that he not have this information. If he did something to Anne in order to get me to cooperate with him, I would never forgive myself, and it would absolutely work. Ugh. All right, well, let me know what you find out. I think I'm going to be spending most of my time coming through Schultz's blog, I said. Sounds like a plan. I'll see you next time one of us makes a breakthrough, he said. One last thing. There is a lighthouse we leave unattended. It operates on its own. If it goes out, none of us know how to fix it. You'd be surprised how quickly the water becomes shallow on your way into the shore. That's the last thing Eliza Schultz ever said to me. And with that, he stood up and left. Um, did anything about that conversation sound suspicious to you? I don't know. Cannonball claims to have a high school education and a brain injury, but he doesn't talk like it. He keeps leaving clues for me to put shit together on my own. He gets special messages from the game runners that I've never gotten, Anne's never gotten them. I don't know what his angle is, but there's there's an angle. It's not straight on, it's 25, 45, there's an angle. I didn't have long to think about it, because as soon as I got home, I got a text from Wobegon. Attached was a photo of Matt. Remember that guy? He sounded like he was going to be really important for a second, and then everything else just got in the way. The message said, Glad you agreed that there are more important things than the prize. Time to do away with yours. Once he's gone, we can really get started on what this is all for. Signed, W.B.G. Really? I'm supposed to kill Matt? But I don't want to kill Matt. I like him. I had just gotten used to him being alive again. Oh shit. If everybody gets the same fourth challenge, that means Anne will get this challenge too. And I'm her prize. But if she doesn't kill me and someone surpasses her in the game, then I die. And if she kills me, I die. People die when they are killed. Did Wobegon just kill me? Did... Did Cannonball say that he already completed his fourth challenge? Did Cannonball kill his wife? Why didn't he warn me about this? Has he, quote, gotten started on what this is all for? If he knows something like that, why won't he tell me? Maybe that's why he's so withholding. Something after Challenge 4 gave him some information that he doesn't want me to have. Maybe that means that he has access to the technology, or limited access, or something. All of this answered and more on the next episode of Wobegon. I'm kidding. You're all pretty much caught up to me at this point. I don't know what happens on the next episode of Wobegon. Hopefully, I'm still alive. This has been Wobegon. Thanks for playing.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.